In a surprise visit to Ukraine, the U.S. defense chief expresses solidarity and announces more military aid. We have reclaimed more than half of the territory that Putin's forces once occupied. And today I can again see firsthand the determination of the Ukrainian people to defend their freedom. Plus, another weekend of Russian missile attacks in Ukraine. Nearly 40 Iranian-made drones launched from Russian territory bombarded Ukrainian air defenses over the weekend. Ukraine said its forces destroyed 29 of the 38 drones. And later in the program, a Ukrainian college student studying in the U.S. finds innovative ways to preserve her country's heritage. Today is Monday, November 20th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London. Amid growing concerns about the sustainability of vital U.S. assistance, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced a new military aid package to Ukraine during an unannounced visit to Kyiv on Monday. Another $100 million uh, drawdown using presidential drawdown authority that it'll provide additional artillery munitions, uh, additional um, interceptors for uh, air defense uh, and uh, in a number of uh, anti-tank weapons as well. Austin said he made the visit in a show of solidarity and wanted to express the U.S.'s unwavering support for Ukraine. I wanted to reassure uh, the leadership that the United States of America will continue to support Ukraine. And uh, and so, you know, we uh, uh, we talked about the things that we're going to continue to do to make sure that they have what they need to be successful on the battlefield. The defense chief was accompanied by the top U.S. general in Europe and met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and some of Ukraine's top military leaders, including his counterpart, Ukrainian Defense Minister Rustem Umarov, who expressed gratitude for U.S. support as they battle Russia's invasion. We're grateful to U.S. government and American people for the unwavering support of Ukraine and our struggle of freedom. Uh, we would not be able to deter unprovoked and unjustified Russian aggression without your constant and substantial help. So I welcome you. We hear more now from VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb traveling with the secretary in Kiev. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's arrival in Kiev early Monday was a brazen display of Western solidarity. It's his first visit to the Ukrainian capital since April 2022, and the first time members of the press made the surprise trip into the war-torn nation with him. Austin came here to discuss the immediate winter fight and to plan for future security assistance to Ukraine. Senior defense officials say the U.S. will provide a steady stream of security assistance throughout the winter. The most important capabilities in the coming weeks will be air defenses, according to officials, which the U.S. and Western allies have surged into Ukraine. The onset of winter has Ukraine and the West convinced that Russian President Vladimir Putin will resume its targeting of critical infrastructure as it did last winter, leaving many citizens without power in some of the coldest days of the year. Nearly 40 Iranian-made drones launched from Russian territory bombarded Ukrainian air defenses over the weekend. Ukraine said its forces destroyed 29 of the 38 drones, but those that made it through Ukraine's defenses struck multiple 
multiple infrastructure facilities and cause power outages in more than 400 towns and villages throughout the country. Some of the drones also targeted Kyiv in the second attack on the capital so far this month. Ukrainian officials said all drones targeting the capital were shot down. Carla Bab, VOA News, Kyiv. And for more on the latest Russian bombardments, as well as Ukrainian advances in Adivka. In Odessa, a drone hit an energy infrastructure facility. As a result, 2,000 families in Odessa and Odessa region were left without electricity. One civilian employee was injured and hospitalized. On Monday morning, the Russian forces shelled the city of Kherson. Two civilians were killed and one injured after Russian forces hit the parking lot of a private transport company. The situation at the front line remains complicated for both sides. Ukrainian general staff confirmed that Ukrainian defense forces continue to hold positions on the left bank of the Kherson region and continue the shelling of the Russian positions. Also, Ukrainian forces reportedly succeed in their counteroffensive in the Avdivka direction, according to the analysis by researchers with the Institute for the Study of War. A Russian military blogger claimed that Ukrainian forces retook positions near the railway near Stepove and counterattacked near the Avdivka coke plant. At the same time, according to the report, Russian troops conducted offensive operations near Avdivka but did not achieve any confirmed success. The Ukrainian general staff reported that Russian troops had unsuccessful advance attempts in a 13-kilometer radius around Avdivka. The latest ISW review notes that Ukrainian and Russian forces continue fighting in eastern and southern Ukraine, although rainy weather is likely to continue to slow the pace of fighting until winter arrives. Anna Chernikova, VOA News, Kyiv. Trucks have been lining up for more than a week at Poland's border with Ukraine because of a protest by Polish truckers blaming the government for failing to protect their businesses from foreign competition since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. Ukrainian authorities said Sunday about 3,000 mostly Ukrainian trucks, including those carrying fuel and humanitarian aid, were stuck on the Polish side. Poland and Ukraine have held talks on the matter but have so far failed to reach agreement. Kiev hopes to hold a new round of negotiations with Warsaw and the European Union this week. Meanwhile, the lower house of Russia's parliament, the state Duma, has approved its biggest ever federal budget, which will increase spending by about 25% in 2024, with record amounts going to defense. With record amounts going to defense. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma Reports. Defence spending is expected to overtake social spending next year for the first time in modern Russian history, at a time when the Kremlin is eager to shore up support for President Vladimir Putin as Russia prepares for a presidential election in March. The leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, Lenin Slutsky, speaking at the Duma, says the main thing is the budget adopted today in the third reading, in fact, bears a name, everything for the front. Everything for victory. Record low unemployment, higher wages and targeted social spending should help the Kremlin ride out the domestic impact of pivoting the economy to a military footing, but could pose a problem in the long term, analysts say. I'm Charles Dilladesma. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. 
Finland's prime minister said Monday the country may need to take further actions on its border with Russia after closing four border crossings in an attempt to stem a recent increase in asylum seekers. Finland, which joined NATO this year in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has accused Moscow of letting migrants from the Middle East and Africa without valid travel documents through to the Finnish border. The government closed the border crossings in southeastern Finland last week, but new migrant arrivals were reported at border checkpoints farther north. Kat Buchatsky, a Ukrainian national now about to graduate from Stanford University, came to the United States with her family following Russia's invasion and the annexation of Crimea. Since then, she has searched for a deeper meaning of her heritage. I spoke with her about founding the Shadows Project and its work to preserve and protect that heritage and the artifacts from its history that are stuck in the middle of the war in Ukraine. I was living in Ukraine for most of my, most of the childhood that I kind of have memories for because I moved to Ukraine when I was about six. And so before six years old, I don't, I don't remember much. And so most of my memories were in Kiev, which is where I was living with my parents, although my dad, my dad's Ukrainian, his side of the family's from Odessa. So that's in southern Ukraine. So we would spend a lot of time in Odessa, spend a lot of time in Kiev. And I grew up there until I was 13 when I saw the revolution of dignity happening around our country. And like for many other Ukrainians, that was a very important moment in my life. I feel as though there's a few moments in a Ukrainian's lives that always has a before and after. And it used to be before and after the revolution. And now we also have before and after the full-scale war. But after the revolution and the annexation of Crimea, we moved to the United States because we didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, Russia invaded southern Ukraine, it invaded Crimea, it invaded eastern Ukraine, and we had no idea how far they would go at that time. So we moved to the U.S. and I ended up doing high school there, going to college here at Stanford. And during my time in the U.S., I think as the years went by, I became more and more confused about what Ukraine meant to me and what and who I was as a Ukrainian, which is what led me to found the Shadows Project. I think having lived in Ukraine, I never really had to investigate much what that meant because it was pretty obvious. I mean, here I am, I'm in Ukraine, the things around me are Ukraine, the things I do every day are my little Ukrainian traditions. That all makes sense. But when I moved to America and I had to start explaining to people, I found that I always kind of had to revert to, oh, well, it's next to Russia or, oh, well, it used to be a part of the Soviet Union because because that was really the only thing that would resonate with Americans. If I tried to tell them that I was from Kiev, it wouldn't get through unless I told them I was from near Russia, which was very confusing for a 13, 14 year old, because I felt as though the place where I grew up my entire life was just kind of erased. And I had stumbled upon this alternate universe where it didn't exist anymore. And the only thing that existed was this, you know, evil empire next to us. And I was getting kind of sucked into their narrative and sucked into their influence in a way, because I was forced to refer to ourselves in context of Russia. And it created a very big identity disconnect and also just a huge frustration that people didn't know more about the largest country in Europe by landmass. People still are surprised when I tell them that it is the largest country in Europe and that people didn't know about our history, our culture and so many interesting things. And going back to Ukraine, I would go back and visit and it turns out that I wasn't the only one that felt that way. And that's kind of how the Shadows Project was born. I was talking with my dad, actually, and he's the one that gave it the name, but I told him how I had 
the feeling and I ha- how I had this idea to kind of do something to make Ukrainian culture Ukrainian and make Ukraine Ukrainian and take back our narrative. And it was his idea to name it Shadows after a very famous Ukrainian book. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it got started. At first, it didn't really have a concrete mission statement. I basically went around to different Ukrainians that were about my age and just basically told them how I was feeling. And turns out that they felt the same way. And we kind of threw together this ragtag group of Ukrainians that wanted to do something to preserve and strengthen their identity. And that's how Shadows came together. And we've been operating for three years now. And I think, of course, over the three years, our mission has become much more defined and we're much more structured. And for the last three years, we've been focused on anything we can do to strengthen, preserve, protect Ukrainian culture. Tell us a little bit about the Shadows Project, what it is, what it does, and how it's evolved. So the Shadows Project was born out of these conversations and we realized it's kind of a philosophy. Shadows, the way we like to describe it, it's it's more of a way of life. It's not really a product or anything very tangible. It's very much a way of life that we're trying to promote within Ukraine. And that way of life being the way to preserve, protect, and popularize your culture is by making it yours, by owning it, and by really being able to use it in your everyday life. It's basically this philosophy of taking culture out of the history books and more into our own hands because when culture only lives in history books and writings and things like that, it really is kind of a burden on each individual person that the only way the culture will survive is by us reading it and memorizing it and internalizing it. And that's not really how it works. I mean, we've been tracking statistics and tracking interest in Ukrainian history and culture within Ukraine. And it's clear that that class is always the like history and culture class is always the least popular class because it's you don't really feel like you relate. You don't really feel like it's yours because you're reading about things that happened centuries ago on in some dusty textbook and you don't really see the relevance to your everyday life. So Shadows' philosophy was basically that in order to make this culture alive, we need to make it ours. We need to make it 21st century while preserving our centuries-old traditions. So the way we do that is by partnering with all kinds of really cool organizations within Ukraine, whether that's a museum or a coffee shop or a fashion brand or a bookstore, whatever it might be, or even a bar. We've had some really cool ideas for collaboration with bars. And what we do is we basically like use their space, use their organization and do a collaboration with them that makes that gives them a little bit of Ukrainian culture. So for example, in the bar, what we do is we'll come to a bar and we'll make a custom Shadows cocktail menu and they'll serve cocktails, each cocktail inspired by a famous character in Ukrainian literature and they'll be named after them. Or for example, the same thing with coffee shop, we'll have a special latte that's inspired by a Ukrainian poem. And along with that, in the menu, for example, there will be a little educational blurb or with a fashion brand making a line of fashion that has something to do with Ukrainian art that comes with little educational blurbs. And so the philosophy is make that culture tangible. People are a lot more likely to kind of remember their history if it was a cocktail that they drank than if it was a paragraph they read in a textbook. And we found that it's really successful because it's unconventional, it's innovative, and people really remember it. People will come up and say, oh, I know that famous piece of literature because there was that really good cocktail about it and it was named after that book and I remember you know thinking about it or something like that and so our approach is a little bit of kind of cultural guerrilla warfare where we believe culture is cool we want to make other people see that whether it's through really cool creative merch or cocktails or coffee or specially designed museum exhibits and so we kind of call ourselves like Ukraine's cultural PR agency in a way all born out of this philosophy that you have to live it in order for it to live on and now with Russia's 
invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, has it brought even deeper meaning to what you're doing? And do you have any sense of where you're heading with this or in your future in general as a Ukrainian national and someone who is about to graduate? Of course, it brought deeper meaning to everyone's life in a way that we never could have imagined. And it's almost funny in a very sad way because I remember the summer before the war began, summer 21, I was with my co-founder. We spent the whole summer in Kyiv working on building shadows and doing all these projects. And we had a very weird, acute awareness of the fact that this battle over the narrative and this battle over the culture is a precursor to a larger battle. We kept trying to tell people and ring the alarm bells because that summer was the summer that Putin released his very now infamous dissertation, which is called something like in English on Ukraine and Russia, what being one nation on the unity of Ukraine and Russia, something like that. And it was this huge dissertation that was thousands of pages long about how Ukraine and Russia share the same history and culture. And this was the summer before the war began. And this was exactly what we were trying to avoid with Shadows Project. Exactly. We were trying to reclaim our narrative and put together our own story. And we had been ringing the alarm bells that, listen, he's not saying this because he sees now and he has too much time on his hands to write his dissertation. That's not what's going on. This is a precursor. He wouldn't be doing all of these things if he wasn't going to enforce them. If he's putting out this paper that Ukraine and Russia are one country with one history, you better believe that he's going to follow up and Ukraine and Russia are going to be one country with one border as well. And it's a precursor to military action. And we were raising these alarm bells eight months, I think this was, before the full-scale invasion. But people didn't take history and culture seriously. They didn't realize that history and culture is in intimately tied with national security, that national security can't exist without a nation, that a nation can't exist without a history and culture. And so after the war began, it was kind of the most bitter, you are right moment where everyone kind of started paying attention and realizing that Russia's historical revisionism and its historical imperialism was part of a larger plan to absorb the Ukrainian nation. And so our mission became more important than ever because we were one of the few people in Ukraine at that time doing this kind of work with Ukrainian culture and obviously the interest in Ukraine culture blew up, not just around the world, but in Ukraine itself. A lot of Ukrainians started to wake up and we kind of found ourselves one of the places where people would go, people would come to. We also had to take on the larger mission of now not only was our culture intangibly under attack through these writings and these memoirs, but physically because art was getting destroyed. Culture was getting destroyed physically. And we found ourselves in a position where our mission now also included actually protecting our tangible cultural heritage as well as our intangible. And so I took a leave of absence from Stanford. I went back to Ukraine. I spent a lot of time there helping evacuate art, helping package the art. We set up as an under part of Shadows, our Skrinya Cultural Heritage Protection Program, where we raised over a million Ukrainian hryvnias to send out equipment to museums all over the country to put their art in safe spaces because, you know, there's we're not going to be able to talk about our history and culture if it doesn't, if our tangible relics don't exist anymore. And so our project took on a very urgent kind of dimension and a very a dimension I never thought that it would take on. I never thought I would be in a museum under missile fire wrapping up these pieces of art and hoping that they, I mean, just the other day in the news, the Museum of Odessa got hit in a missile strike. It's my favorite museum in Ukraine. Some of my favorite pieces were damaged. And so it's something that's still happening every day. We're working on new deliveries every day. But unfortunately, the war is not going to end anytime soon. So I see shadows continuing its work on that because art is still getting to 
destroyed, got destroyed this week. It's going to get destroyed next week, probably. But in terms of the intangible part of shadows that isn't our cultural heritage protection program, the silver lining of this is that because interest in Ukrainian culture skyrocketed, that means that initiatives like ours skyrocketed as well. And so we're now in a community filled with other kind of cultural historical initiatives. And we're not the only fish in the pond, which is actually great because I think that now it allows us to recalibrate and think, okay, there's a lot of people doing this work right now. We can really reconsider whether we still need to be the primary people doing educating on this topic. And we can be a little bit more creative. Now the burden is shared a bit. There's a lot of really cool educational initiatives and we can focus on what we love, which is producing really interesting, unique, innovative collaborations. Because before we also ran an educational uh, online Instagram where we would post a lot. And now we've stepped away from that. And we're really just looking forward on to doing more tangible projects now that there's so much so much awareness about Ukrainian culture. It gives us a lot of room to be creative. I would imagine that also gives you some hope that there is so much interest. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's been great. And a lot of the people um, that are running these similar initiatives and, and Instagrams and online media are people that we know well, because the cultural community is still quite small, even though there's a lot of interest. And so we've been loving it. And it's been giving us a lot more opportunities to kind of do different projects, whereas before we had the problem of, oh, well, we can't really do a project about this Ukrainian artist without first doing a whole online campaign, educating people about the artist, because no one's going to buy a t-shirt of an artist they don't know, et cetera, et cetera. But now the educating part is being taken care of, and we can, yeah, we can be creative. Pat Buchatsky, founder of The Shadows Project, mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing your story. After Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukrainian native and California resident Oleksandr Zabelan started Outbaking, a Berkeley-based bakery that provides reliable jobs to Ukrainian refugees. Kristiana Shevchenko has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Since early morning, these women have been working magic with dough, making traditional Ukrainian baked goods at Outbaking, based in Berkeley, California. We are making pastries with poppy seeds, apricot, and strawberry jam. Larisa Vakulenka is from the Ternopil region in western Ukraine. She came to California after Russia invaded her home country, just like the other Ukrainian women working here. Vinnytsa native Alena Heresimyuk came to stay with her son in Berkeley. For over a year, she couldn't find a job. This was my first job here. I'm happy this job allows me to work with my fellow Ukrainians because I've been lacking a Ukrainian community abroad. On top of that, baking gives me a feeling of home, and it's a great feeling. Svetlana, who didn't want to share her last name, is 60. She also moved to California from the Ternopil region. Just like Heresimyuk, she had a hard time finding work in the U.S. It was very hard for me to find a job here. I'm not that young anymore. It was hard, but out baking gave me an opportunity to bake, and I do that happily. Alexander Zabelin founded Outbaking after Russia invaded Ukraine. An immigrant from Odessa, he came to the U.S. some three decades ago. I went to school in Ukraine. I finished high school, which unfortunately no longer exists. My school was bombed and uh, it's in a very, it's an old town of Odessa and it was heartbreaking. 
Starting businesses is nothing new for Zabilin. He has founded a number of startups in California, and after February 24, 2022, he knew what his next one would be. He wanted to help Ukrainian refugees and popularize something he's loved since childhood. Ukrainian pastries. I decided there's going to be one of the most useful ways to create this community. They're all Ukrainians, they work together in a common kitchen, they can speak Ukrainian language, not learn about, not worry about new language and environment. Zabilin says Americans aren't as familiar with traditional Ukrainian pastries as they are with croissants, for example, and he hopes to change that. It's actually very interesting because some places are cautious, like, what is it? It's so small. You know, give us a couple to try, we'll see. And then they call us again and say, everything's sold out. So next time they usually fivefold, tenfold. Zabilian delivers the pastries to cafes and coffee shops himself. He plans to expand the business and hire more Ukrainian refugees, as well as open a proper cafe. For Christina Shevchenko in Berkeley, California, NRAs. VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just be sure and follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London.